I remember hearing someone once say, I didn't have the best childhood, but I certainly had the longest. And I look at America and I see a lot of people who are having incredibly lengthy childhoods. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. On this episode of Tell Me About Your Father, I talk with the choreographer, writer, and performance artist Jack Ferber about their work. Jack, who uses they-them pronouns, puts words and movement to the grief, loss, and fragmentation, or shattering of the self, as they call it, that comes with the near-constant existential and cultural threats the world poses to queer people and essentially anyone without power. Jack's piercing dance theater pieces have been called wild and tragicomic by the New York Times and so extreme that they sometimes look and feel like exorcisms by the New Yorker. And although pain is at the center of much of Ferber's work, it's often arch and bitingly funny too. A new performance forthcoming at Mass Mocha is called Is Camp Global Warming and Other Forms of Theatrical Distance for the End of the World? and incorporates Kellyanne Conway as a character. If you've seen the now iconic Starburst candy commercial from 2008 featuring a character evocative of little Lord Fauntleroy named The Little Lad, that's also Jack Ferver wearing a Victorian children's play suit and page boy wig, dancing and clapping with delirious joy, exclaiming that they're a little lad who loves berries and cream. Here's a clip. Berries and cream, berries and cream. I'm a little lad who loves berries and cream. Berries and cream, berries and cream. I'm a little lad who loves berries and cream. As you can hear, the commercial is deeply strange and silly and was otherwise forgotten until Gen Z TikTok users started posting clips of Jack in 2021, prompting them to make their own little lad account with posts instantly racking up views in the millions. Our conversation today centers less directly on Jack's experience of their own late father or their difficult childhood growing up in small town Wisconsin, but about what the little lad that makes adults uneasy with their feminists has come to represent for a new generation of other half boys and half girls. This is the way that Jack described themselves in kindergarten and which led to relentless bullying from classmates and society at large. Though I ask Jack if they feel like a parental figure toward the little lad, for them, the character is an opportunity to practice, quote, father erasure. This is something you might also say has impacted Jack's primary work as a choreographer, particularly the void left by the countless artists who died of AIDS in the 1980s and whose influence and mentorship were lost to them and so many others as well. Jack and I also talk about the ruinous and sustained defunding of the National Endowment for the Arts in the 1980s under America's abusive father, President Ronald Reagan, as well as exercising trauma in the body through dance and movement, the role of the teacher, the inspiration that Jack draws from Tori Amos's father record, why on earth we let high schoolers perform A Streetcar Named Desire, 
and the importance of learning how to take off your own handcuffs. Okay, here's Jack. Jack, when did you move to New York City? How old were you when you got here? I moved to New York in 1997. I was 18. And where was home for you before that? I grew up in Prairie du Sac, Wisconsin. And I have a, a few kind of go-to lines, but my escape route was very at the beginning of the bell jar. Like I got a scholarship here and a scholarship there. And I ended up in New York driving my own private car, but I wasn't driving anything, not even myself. It was really, <laughs> um, I got a scholarship to go to Interlochen Arts Academy. And from there, I got a, the one scholarship that's offered, that was at that point offered for Williamstown Theater Festival's apprentices. They at that point took 80 apprentices and one would get a full scholarship. And I got that and I got cast as a lead in a main stage. And from that, I got cast as a supporting character in a Miramax film. And I took that money and I moved to New York. And what was life like in Wisconsin as a kid growing up? I mean, I've made work about this question. I have answered this question in talkbacks and, and other podcasts. And, and yet every time I get asked that question, the stab wound always feels fresh. It was really terrifying. It was really brutal. I, in, I think kindergarten said that I was half boy, half girl, and that really didn't go over well. And I was picked on from that point going forward and really singled out. I, I would absolutely say that I was the most singled out. Um, it was a very small town. The abuse was daily at school and my home was, I didn't know it at the time, but was also not a safe space. What were your parents like? What kind of a, you mentioned it wasn't a safe space, but what was the general vibe in your, your house like? My father was gone for really my, a lot from really my first, like the first nine years because of work. And my mother was omnipresent. And when my mother died at her uh, memorial service, I said that my mother taught me about humor and about rearranging reality. And that's what I use to make my work now. What a way to survive. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there was a lot of danger inside of that, that again, I didn't realize until, I mean, I was put into therapy very early on because I was selected as the designated problem as opposed to the host of abuse I was in because I was exhibiting the symptoms of someone who's being abused. But instead of the external factors being addressed, I was the, the designated. It gets talked about in, in family therapy, and I just can't think of the word right now, but it's called like the, the designated patient and um, mm -hmm. I, like that. And, and that started also around nine, interestingly, when my father would be more present later in my adult therapy was able to see that there's ways in which some of that rearranging of reality was of course so helpful and, and helped me survive and then also didn't acknowledge the reality of the abuse i've thought about it a lot through the pandemic and i've thought about it through my whole life i feel like trump made it very clear but certainly in this pandemic non-consensual reality as just a daily gauntlet 
to survive is I am one of those COVID Cassandras. And all through 2019, I was having panic attacks. I was like, something really bad is going to happen. And I would meditate and see waves of death. And then I had my car packed with two weeks of food by February 12th. I was the first to go remote in my job in March 3rd, I think, of 2020. But as I frequently say for survivors of abuse, you know, psychic or hypervigilant, yes. Mm -hmm. I love how you phrase that non-consensual reality. I mean, my father died of alcoholism four years ago, but dealing with his alcoholism felt at times abusive for me growing up because there was so much lying that went on in my home. And so I felt like when Trump came into office and when the whole concept of, you know, alternative facts and and all of it, it was just like a massive trigger. Like I needed more Al-Anon meetings just to deal with who was sitting in the Oval Office. Yes, certainly. Yes, with my parents. But I mean, also at school to be to be told that, I mean, and, and my angle here as a non-binary queer person, or I, I guess my view of the world through that, what is true for me is that I'm, I am told that it's not real mm-hmm. and that it doesn't exist. And so the culmination of those is then says that I don't exist. And that is a, a difficult way to then sort of meet the world. I feel really fortunate in that I had one very strong support, which was my sister, who is uh, 18 years my senior, and who was able to guide me through the labyrinth of the parent trap. And her therapist was able to help me find a therapist in New York when I was young. But it's so much of where I've made my art work from. I haven't shown a piece in, I created a piece in 2018. I, I showed it again in 2019 called Everything is Imaginable. And I really found something in that work formally of how to deal with this shattering, this relentless shattering process I feel in, and that I feel survivors feel in of whatever the abuse they are coming from. For some of us, we're born into it in terms of our minority status and others it happens to. Because look, you can be a a cis white straight man and certainly be abused and be placed into an arena of how do I navigate this world that is, has certainly not shown itself to be worth my trust. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's where I wanted to make my work. I wanted everyone to, or anyone who came to my to the work to feel not alone in that. Because mm-hmm. the loneliness of it is what makes it feel so untenable. And that is where, for me, the art making practice and putting it in front of people has felt like at least this is some service I can make with this, mm-hmm. what this is. Um, so my next piece is called, uh, which will happen at Mass Mocha, this summer, which will have been, I mean, almost four years later, I pitched it in 2019, in the fall of 2019. It's called, um, Is Global Warming Camp and Other Forms of Theatrical Distance for the End of the World. Amazing. And, and you brought up alternative facts, and I will say that Kellyanne Conway is in it. I am obsessed with Kellyanne Conway. There was really something when she said that, and it would the hair toss with it, 
I don't know, I, I felt she was really ushering in uh, this incredible dark force of postmodernism that I found formally fascinating. As a human being revolted by, as an artist intrigued, <laughs> and psychologically, I would say, disturbed and fascinated. Yeah, I think that's the perfect description. Disturbed fascination, the, the commitment. And I think probably as an artist and performer, I wonder if looking at someone commit to that, that alternate plane of existence and also cruel alternate plane, you know, like the willful and a, and a woman. A woman I, I feel that this is this thing that as we go to villainize men, I, I think of when we look at the what the numbers are for the white women who voted for Trump and where Kellyanne stands inside of that. And I think that's something else that I, you know, abuse can infect the abused, of course. So when we look at the long, endless horror of misogyny and where its tentacles reach out and infect women, queer people. I mean, as I've gone back and looked at reviews that were really trying to destroy me, it's not homophobia that I read in those reviews, actually, it's femphobia. Because I presented myself in a more, I think, categorically acceptable cis gay male way, then it's, it stays in a lane. Mm -hmm. The issue, I think, is always continually categorical thought and how utterly destructive it is. Uh, because it it sets up the arenas for where to start your war from. I wonder too about going back to childhood and like, and I want to be mindful too of, you know, the fresh stabbing feeling that revisiting this brings up for you. Um, I think what strikes me listening to you talk too, and especially about femphobia and the ways that misogyny gets you know turned inward especially for women and even queer people i would say adults fear of femme boys um and and children that don't conform to gender i could see that really turning into something that would make you feel erased well and the wildness of feeling all at once erased while all at once focused on Mm -hmm. i mean again that feeling of erasure while having all this attention on all this extreme negative attention on me period Mm -hmm. it's uh i think where dance became so imperative for me or where i when i found it and when i really started working with it more and where i realized i needed it was the attacks of my childhood were psychological and they were physical and so the work I've had to do to save my psyche, I've also had to do work to save my body. My best friend, who is also a performer, we've been circling the body. I think it's the body keeps the score. And because I opened it and I went to the bathroom and started, I thought I was going to throw up. And I teach students how to be with their body. I, with a professor at Bard, we co-led a course on disability and difference past semester and my entry point into it was about abandoning the idea of neutrality and just getting rid of that idea that there's a neutral body really helping students 
come into being with their bodies and what does their body want, I think is such a generally overlooked question mm-hmm. because we go to the body either to work out for some sense of for the other, whatever that Lacanian O other is, or God, the way self-care can turn into a host of forms of abuse, self-abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so inside of my work, I mean, that's where the dancing has stepped in to convey things that there are some things that are, they're just unspeakable. There, mm-hmm. when my father was dying, I, I didn't know what I would do and I, I didn't know how to get through it. I, with my mother, my, my sister and I went back and took care of her through the end and, and my brother helped, uh, on the other side of that, of the the pieces that we didn't feel we could do and or were exhausted by at that point. I mean, I should also say that my, with the income level my parents were at, it just meant that it was terrifying. This is mm-hmm. an utterly broken system. And so it meant that we needed to bring our mother home to take care of her because they were, we were told that like, well, she can't stay here. Was she hospitalized or in like a treatment center? She had been, I mean, my mother first became ill when I was young. I mean, she was, she, I think had her first stroke. This, my, my father returning home coincided with my mother's first stroke. She would find out that later that she had subsequently, she had three strokes. It was eventually discovered that she had a hole in her heart, all poetry intended. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I say that because I love my mother, but at the same time, she had huge gaps in her reality that I think came from probably her own abuse that I wish she could have navigated things better. But uh, anyhow, uh, so by the time, I can't remember how old I was, it was 2013, she had been in Coumadin for such an extended period of time for blood thinner that she had a cerebral hemorrhage. And so my sister and I went back to sort of advocate for the hospital system, but then she's put in it nursing home, which was awful. And then she, when the death process began, they were like, there's just not enough beds for us to have her here in an emergency room. So you can either have her go back and die in the nursing home or take her home. And it was just clear that we would do it at home. And then with my father, uh, I didn't know how how to handle it. And as I said to my therapist, and I think this is really key for anyone out there who's a survivor, and if you're feeling like you don't know what to do with something, I said to my therapist, I just don't know what to do. And this is, I've been with this therapist for 19 years. I, I really credit him with saving my life, with teaching me how to live. I mean, he really stepped in as the father I didn't have and taught me how to be for others what I didn't have, as did my sister, really my sister and my therapist. And so I had my sister as a child, and I still have her now, and, and my therapist, and, um, who helped guide me to well be what you didn't have. And uh, I said to my therapist, I don't know what to do. And he said, it's a tragedy. And that was so helpful because I think we, especially in Western culture, we look to figure it out or that we ourselves can be the masters of the universe. And it made sense that that would come through as I grew up with He-Man and She-Ra. Always, of course, related more to the Shira figures. I was so obsessed with Katra, and that helped me. Some things yeah. are tragedy, and uh, you know, obviously, we've we lost Didion recently, and I I feel that that Didion would have said the same. 
Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that statement that your therapist made is incredibly helpful. I think for you as a survivor of trauma and abuse and someone with a complicated relationship with their father, but also I think it works twofold too about just how we handle death culturally. Like, uh, we don't. We don't. And, you know, my dad, as I said, died, it'll be four years in April. And I, really I think cognitively thought it would take me like six months and I'd be good like I remember saying that to my therapist at the time like being hard on myself that I was quote still grieving like two years later and she was like Elizabeth we are the only culture in you know western civilization that doesn't really honor or acknowledge death I mean there is the practice of sitting shiva that for those of us who aren't in that culture don't have. I think that this pandemic has shown, and when I talk about non-consensual reality, I'm really, I think, would just begin by talking about death in that we completely not only don't acknowledge it, but run as fast as we can with a myriad of mitigations that work really well for a capitalist, imperialist structure. And because if you just work a lot, then you stay in the system. And to honor death requires some sense of stopping or crying or being vulnerable, all of which does not marry well in capitalist imperialism. And so as these death tolls continue here in America, and there's a a book that I found very helpful called uh, Mourning is the New Black by Darian Leader. And he unpacks Freud's Mourning and Melancholia. And this is the anniversary month of my father's death in 2017. Knowing that I was coming today to speak with you about this as my the whole day leading up to it was so painful. And I was reminded of the book, which is that like, because and he 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 Leader unpacks it more in terms of talking about it. World War One, there was such a mass death that people just kind of couldn't handle it and moved on. This is sort of <laughs> exemplified in Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. You see what happens by not doing that, that actually you've created all these fractures and shattered gaps in which you are dissociatively moving through your life and are perhaps perplexed by ruminative, discursive thoughts that have nothing to do with where you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, all of which I would say is part of the grief process. And so Leader really unpacks it in terms, mainly in terms of World War I, but I think it's also to look at that that pandemic as well that was happening, that was coinciding, that Moby Dick really didn't become that popular until our last pandemic when people Mm -hmm. felt trapped on a boat. And that these things are so, we just, we lost it. We really, we really lost it. But I'd also say this this country lost it and how it even began. Mm-hmm. And so it, it began prior to that. And I think that there were so many of us who had a hope of that we were moving towards some sense of humanity that I, I think, uh, as Lana Del Rey said, hope is a dangerous thing. Thank you, Lana. I mean, yeah, I I sometimes think back to like, you know, March 2020, watching the news. And I want to say that they had... Fauci on or or someone on saying that they thought maybe a hundred thousand people could die. 
and like cognitively that just I couldn't wrap my head around it. I still can't wrap my head around that 100,000 people. And now here we are at over 800,000 and we will hit a million. Yes. And what do we right. do with that? Like we and we will never be able to acknowledge those million lives culturally or like together in a way that will ever heal us or help us to fix the system that made a million people die. Right. You know, and that feels like tragedy, too. I would say this also relates to fathers as in 2019, my Jeremy Jacob, who I'm, I'm now married to, or one of those like COVID weddings where it, it was we like did in our apartment with two people. But Jeremy and I were the AIDS oral history fellows at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts and in the Jerome Robbins Dance Division. So I was spending 2019 listening to the oral histories of dancers and choreographers dying of AIDS. They'd go to the library and then I would listen to these interviews and cry. And I knew and a lot of my research had has been about that so many of the people who would have mentored me, guided me, curated me, been an audience for me, a teacher, a critic for me, are dead of AIDS. And the last play that I did that was like someone else's play was this play called Christmas on Mars by Harry Kondolian, who died of AIDS. I was also interested in the work of Reza Abda, who died of AIDS. These are were people who were also, also breaking down the binary of dance and performance, dance and theater, and moving towards something that was more about performance. And, and knowing that while during AIDS, there was also the NEA4, so that Karen Finley et al. gets attacked by may he rot forever jesse helms and the reagan administration and made that mm -hmm. entire violent evil thing i remember you know there's that interview with reagan where he laughs about aids mm -hmm. he's on tape laughing about it yeah, yeah. Where they, and i believe in inside of that they've been talking about ryan white a child i mean it's yeah. it's the sheer cruelty and 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 a real evilness it's evil and mm -hmm. so we made a performance lecture based on our research and we did that piece at the end of January of 2020. Called Nowhere Apparent, right? That piece is called Nowhere Apparent. God, I think that was my most out-of-body performance I think I've ever done. I mean, and what had happened was all through 2019 is I started to black out as I was reading these things in front of people. <laughs> and I couldn't keep it together as a performer. I, at one point, started crying. I could hear people in the audience start crying because there were people there who I was talking about their friends. And then I stood in the lobby with people who've lost their friends who were crying with these people who felt like they were given a memorial and AIDS and its impact. There were artists who were really pushing forward things in terms of sexuality and gender. I think of Arnie Zane had this incredible, it was Bill T. Wilson's partner. And, I'm sorry, Bill T. Jones. But Arnie had this interview and he talked about feeling like things were going too slow. And Arnie's was the most painful for me to listen to because it was the one that I related to the most. He's angry and he's funny and he's femi and all of these things that I just wish, wish that I could have as a mentor or as a friend. Or, and <laughs> he's dead. And Arnie was talking about things going too slow and gender and sexuality and his rage of watching Merce Cunningham come out and partner all these women and saying, and I know Merce and Merce is a homosexual. 
and then thinking about Western concert dance and what goes forward and what doesn't. And, and I look at dance and especially dance that traffics with capital and how utterly, utterly, utterly behind it is in terms of gender and sexuality, sexual orientation is uh, when it gets to anything outside of a heteronormative partnering or even the choreographers who get to make choreography about something that's not heteronormative are generally heterosexual cis white people. So the tragedy of hearing that and, and getting to watch Arnie in a video talk about his friends who are dead. So AIDS is happening while governmental support of arts is being removed mm-hmm. because they knew that artists were just too down to fight. We had been like so taken down that how could we fight against the restructuring of the NEA? Mm-hmm. Which back in the day, an artist like me could have received, well, I would receive $12,000 a year from the government. That's equivalent to $24,000 a year now. Mm-hmm. That is removed and was removed during AIDS. So mm-hmm. now I'd have to have a board of directors and I'd have to be making work that'd be deemed appropriate, right? So when people are like, why is this all so bad? You know, and when my students are like, why is it like this? I, I start every semester talking about AIDS. Good. Because if you want to know why Broadway looks like it does and why people get away with what they get away with, AIDS, in terms of entertainment and arts and all of that. Why is gender so, like, now it's getting some glimmers here and there, but I'm still like, well, where is the non-binary representation? It's still very much in a mask and femme line. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I think that is in the canyon, that is in the void, that is AIDS and the government's restructuring of art funding at that time when people were down and we will never, ever recover from that, ever. Mm -hmm. And so all that one can do, or as I frequently say, I just feel I'm in the dark trying to lead my students through a very dark wood that I can't see in front of myself with enough breadcrumbs that I was able to research and find. I also think that AIDS is a way to talk about the loss of people that could have been guiding forces and you could call some of them potential quote father figures or just parental figures or inspirations or guides. Well, and I love the idea of like if Arnie would have got to be alive and got to see gender and sexuality go forward, would Arnie have been able to uncover more things for himself around those lines. I mean, just regardless of the art he's putting out, what about his life? Mm-hmm. And that's so painful for me mm-hmm. as, a, as someone who is in a in these positions as an artist, as a teacher. What about the artist's life? What about the teacher's life? What about the care for them? I mean, and certainly looking at this right now in this pandemic of thrusting these teachers back into classrooms. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are first responders as well. And that the government is not. The government is certainly not a first responder. Remember when they were like, well, don't wear masks because we're not quite sure how it'll work. Remember when the CDC said that? I was like, well, this is why I'm absolutely going to stop listening to the CDC. And then I think of the people who also supported it and what level of abuse had either allowed for themselves to just be opened enough to evilness or that they were in their Stockholm syndrome or that this is how they had to navigate their own fear of death. I mean, eventually 
you have to realize that there isn't a parent so that you can grow up and be responsible. And a lot of people just don't want to do that because we live in a time where, you know, as I remember hearing someone once say, I didn't have the best childhood, but I certainly have the longest. And I look at America and I see a lot of people who are having incredibly lengthy childhoods. I mean, storming the Capitol like a bunch of teenagers. I mean, I live for Azalea Banks saying this looks like meth behavior. This is meth behavior, which, you know, when we think about active addicts, we do talk about someone behaving irrationally and, and children behave irrationally. They're led just by their emotions only. Completely. And certainly selfishly, certainly without a sense of, and that's why, and we let children have that. They must have that. They need to play and have all of that. And then we teach them about being responsible towards others or, you know, if you, if you made that mess, can you please clean that up? And mm-hmm. with a lot of, hopefully a parent does it with a lot of kindness and hopefully they've picked up Winnicott somewhere along the way and probably not, but. It was meth head behavior watching just the level of rage that was almost um, supernatural, giving people supernatural strength to climb up walls and like almost like demons smash through windows overpower police officers because they're operating from this place of unbridled rage, fear, and God knows what else that they haven't even stopped to think about what's happening or what they're doing. But inside of that, in terms of like fathers and when I, I spoke about Kellyanne, it's why, but I loved Kellyanne. And I, I think I, I will, I'm all, because I'm always interested in where women pick up the reins in a way, because look, obviously I do stand by the, that thing about power, like total power corrupts totally or something like that. I mean, people, supposedly we are in a checks and balances government. I I would love to see more of that, but I'm so bored of watching men abuse it. And I know that women abuse it too, because I, I have had firsthand experience of witnessing it. I just guess I, if I'm going to watch someone do it, I'd rather watch a woman do it because I'm, I'm literally just bored of watching men do it. It it feels so um, expected. Mm-hmm. Can you hear those kids outside the window? No. Oh, now I can. Now you can. I was I was thinking about what you're talking about. Oh, your windows out of your road to go. I know. I feel like um, I feel like that great. It's it's that it's that uh John Waters film where where uh Mink Stoll opens her window and screams, <laughs> "Go back to your parents." <laughs> and and she goes, they won't do anything or something like that. And she talks about the Supreme Court and she goes, I hate, <laughs> I hate the Supreme Court. Tell your parents that I hate them. Tell your parents that I hate you. <laughs> That's so genius. I'm se- I'm seconds away of, of being someone that has a psychotic episode out their, their window in New York City. <laughs> well, thank God that we have Vink Stoll screaming it. I mean, I think of the, or I think of Mommy Dearest when she opens the window and she goes, Christina, Christopher, damn it. <laughs> and she has all that face tape on. Nice. And she's close to the banister and she goes, Carol Ann, get the children out of the garden. <laughs> have Christina bring in my coffee. 
as Parker has said, Parker Posey, as I, you know, and for listeners, maybe she's my best girlfriend, but she's my twin. When Parker and I met, she said, you're my twin. <laughs> and we are very much spirit twins. And, and when we've talked about Mommy Dearest, I was like, oh, this movie. And Parker said, it's medicine. <laughs> totally. Um, I feel that way about John Waters. I mean, medicine, but I mean, I'd also, I mean, but from, I watch Mommy Dears as if it's made by John Waters because it's really, because <laughs> yeah, it essentially should have been. Well, it, and it is. I mean, it's really up when people, people bandy the word camp around too much. It's Mommy Dearest, it's Black Swan, like the, this is camp. Anyhow, mm-hmm. it needs to attempt the thing and fail, but it really needs to attempt. You know, the attempt has to be pure so that the failure is so beautiful. I wish that Anna Wintour had gotten that explanation when she did the camp uh, Met Gala thing. Wow. I was like, this seems more about, I don't even know, Disney. Like, and in a way, Disney is a kind of camp. Very true. People die there and then their dead bodies are taken somewhere off the lot so that Disney can say that no one's ever died at Disney. Did you know that? No. People they have died at Disney World, but they're pronounced dead somewhere else so that Disney can remain as a place where no one ever dies. Oh, my God. That is also non-consensual truth. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, there you, there you are in the parent trap again. Like, I don't see it. I don't see it. Turn that frown upside down. A smile doesn't hurt. So um, I really got sidetracked. It's okay. Um, You mentioned the body. You know, the body keeps score is a book that has been I think more more and more referred to and like especially just like the general conversation for lack of a better phrase in recent years and I think there's a slow acceptance and understanding of the concept of storing trauma in bodies. I'm wondering about dance and choreography because I feel like this is a new concept for us, but I also wonder if choreographers have always known that moving the body or dancing is a way to communicate what's inside. Some, I would say a lot, no. What the body, which is already viewed as so suspect, uh, because especially here in America, this is a puritanical culture that has been uh, grown through uh, slavery and the monstrous true evilness of that endeavor to build out its infrastructure. So the body therefore has has this whole labor aspect to it. And when it steps outside of that, that labor then seems like it needs to only exist in, in some sort of entertainment. Hmm. Or the and that entertainment could then of course quite quickly then go into that it's sexual Mm. and that is very terrifying for a a puritanical based society and so I think there's some who knew so my training is Graham and I think Martha Graham knew I think Mm. that Martha Graham discovered there's this story of that she you know was just poor and she the Dennis Sean she had come from Ruth St. Dennis and Ted Sean and they went let her teach their technique, which I can't imagine what technique that was, except cultural appropriation. And so she was with Louis Horst, who is this composer, pianist for her dancers, as well as dance critic and theorist. And he was married. 
she was staying with him in his apartment. And I, and she would wake up every day to sit on the floor to think of what she was going to do. And I really imagined that she just sat there one day crying. And it was the experience of her feeling the contraction and release of crying that led to the movement. That's my own theory of where contraction and release comes from, from Arthur Graham. I've never read it anywhere explicitly. I just, that's what I think it is. And that she also understood the relationship between crying, laughing, and sex. And these really human experiences that are, that are looked to be kept private and so therefore are given shame. And because I think people are shamed for laughing, they are shamed for crying, and they are shamed for sex. And where, you know, in terms of this country and all of its Calvinist efforts, these things come forward, I think are really, it's a lot to fight against. Uh, Graham mm -hmm. broke the zeitgeist inside of it. And so it was, I'm so grateful that that was my opening into dance training because it's where I connected to my pelvis and my pelvis had been taken from me. You connected to your pelvis. I read a really interesting quote from you, I believe in Garage Magazine about Martha Graham and the pelvis and the power of the pelvis and Martha Graham's work and the ways that that the pelvis can sometimes, I think you described it as a handshake between queer people and women. Yes. Can you tell me more about that? There was an interview I did with Gia Corliss about Martha Graham and it's where queer people and women are shamed for their sexuality in a way that I just don't see happen with straight men. Like, I just don't see it happen. And, um, which can feel very, again, in non-consensuality wild when I think about, I mean, you had a, this rapist as a president who like literally admitted to it on tape and still was voted in. So, uh, or at least on that tape, we will say assaulted, mm -hmm. right? So, so, so the people are like, well, that's not rape. And I say, well, it's assault. It's assault when you grab someone. So where we are so shamed and so therefore placed into some sort of dark cave where we need to be like shunned away, I think we can meet each other there. And that that cave is the pelvis to me, like that, that cave where we may have retreated is the pelvis and it's where we find this place. And I'm using the word queer here because I think there's a lot of ways in which now that when marriage became legalized for homosexual couples, I viewed that as really great. And also I'm aware of how assimilation helps feel like I've given you this, so now keep quiet. And so I think that, and this is true in terms of all intersectional dynamics, like you look at where someone's given like a little bit, but it's, it's not the same. Again, I will always make sure I'm keeping the finger squarely pointed at the 1% because this is about money. This is about kings and queens. Mm -hmm. This is about kings and queens trying to maintain power at all costs. And then they figure out how to keep everyone busy below their hands. So that's what I meant by that, that I think the shame that can drive one into a very lonely cave. One can meet other people who've been driven into that cave and that cave is the pelvis. I want to ask you about repetition in your work. I watched Tool Like, which came out in uh, 2011 on your website. And it's a piece that you did with Mark Swanson. And the reason that I'm bringing it up is because you in it, you talk about some experiences with 
childhood bullying and some of the trauma that you've gone through or the performer on stage is talking about that because I know mm -hmm. you mentioned that some of it's biographical and some of it isn't but that piece is intensely autobiographical to be transparent okay I want <laughs> so you deal. you perform a scene from Return to Oz mm -hmm. which for listeners at home came out was it 1985 or 86 around then and is sort of a, a sequel to The Wizard of Oz starring Frieza Ball. And you perform a monologue in which she's in like, like Auntie M has taken her to be committed essentially to erase her memories of Oz. Through electroshock therapy. Yes. And that, that it had just been discovered, you know, so they're also basing it at like the advent of electroshock therapy during the advent of the electrical era. And in the scene, another character, another girl who is also there comes and tells her, you know, you have to come with me. And Dorothy says, what's that screaming? And the girl says to her, they're patients who have been damaged, locked in the cellar. Yeah. Quick. And at first you perform it, the audience laughs and it's very big and, 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 and it is comedic at first. And then the more you, you do it, the more you perform the scene over and over again in a loop almost, the less funny it becomes. And I'm wondering about if repetition for you, if that's sort of a reflection of processing trauma or processing sort of what's happened in life. Because I know it is for me personally, the loop that you do. I work really hard to not be in a loop of that happened, that happened, that happened. But the ways that the stories about what what we tell ourselves or experiences that we've had shift the more we we revisit them if like repetition is a way to explore trauma or is a way to to talk about it i do think repetition is a way to explore trauma because it's inevitable i think we have a lot in our culture that says just take an opposite action and i believe in that too but uh, my terror is inside of and i use this in a later work called sham the the sort of labeled female body on stage played by Michelle Mola is jumping up and down in front of a mirror saying, I love and approve of myself. And my point of that was that I'd read that in Louise Hay while at the same time thinking about how Pema Chodron had discussed using affirmations while the still quiet voice in you says, that's not true. And so when you go through trauma, there is a shattering process and these different pieces go into different rooms. And as I look to integrate all of those, it means that I have to open the door of all the rooms and let everyone be able to come into the house. And so when it's just this affirmative omnipotent, which for me feels very capitalist, there's so much I do in my work around fame and celebrity, which was like such a joke because I was doing these pieces where I was getting paid like nothing. And then working as a Pilates teacher so I could afford my life and making like $16,000 a year and being on Medicaid and, you know, but I would pretend that I was like this famous because <laughs> I found celebrity culture so funny. And also that I had moved to New York doing a movie. So I'd been really close to it. So I was like, yeah. wow, this is an interesting route. And to talk about Return to Oz, that movie, that's a movie that saved my life. I mean, it's all kind of part of this conversation 
I've said this, I think, in another podcast. I'm fine sharing it here. At nine, I tried to kill myself. That was what began me being like put into these different with different therapists who had one really great therapist and then a lot of not. And I saw that movie the same year that I was being that I was meeting with a therapist who I really I felt like was just trying to erase my mind. And I was a child and I think children know Mm -hmm. their instincts are right. And I felt so safe by knowing that this movie had happened and that this little girl had triumphed that it stuck in me and I would repeat that scene over and over again. And so I decided to do it as an adult, but to see what would happen when I would repeat it as an adult and formally was thinking about actionism and repetition and durational performance. And what if I took this thing I did as a child and did it durationally? so that I get to a point where physically I can't do it anymore. I am really crying because I'm in pain and something is working itself out through that. That is one way repetition can work because I think a lot of the anxiety that I have as a survivor comes from the inability to cry and to Mm -hmm. grieve. So if you repeat something out enough, maybe you'll get to the point where you're just too exhausted to resist crying anymore. And then when you cry, you'll let it come out. And that is that part of you that has been locked in a room that needs to come out and and be released. Then people are like, and then it's over, which I have to say (laughs) is a really horrifying and inaccurate uh, description of recovery because it's, Mm -hmm. that is to say is that there's any ending besides death. You know, there isn't. And so that's what I'm doing in that section, in that piece. And the other thing inside of it is that what's great about Return to Oz is it's unclear if that girl is real or not. Mm-hmm. She's never discovered after the flood. She appears to Dorothy in Oz, which may or may not actually be happening. It may just be that Dorothy did go unconscious when she like fell into a river and like slams into a like chicken coop she's able to get into. It's all unclear what happens to her after she falls in the river and if that girl is even there or not. Because earlier on, the girl appears and then disappears out of her room. So also, who do we call in to help us? And are they there? Are they not? And in the movie, that girl is Ozma. That girl is actually the, the princess of Oz, who's meant to be the rightful ruler of it, who's been stolen from by the Gnome King, who has stolen the ruby slippers and who's wearing them. That this Gnome King, when Dorothy appears and he goes looking for these and he pulls back his, like, king gown and he's wearing the ruby slipper which has given him ultimate power i mean i have chills all over thinking about where men also take it's just this thing but he's also allowed for mombi to be this witch who gets to take all these women's heads so that she can be however beautiful she wants to be in the moment it's like trump and kelly and conway you know really I remember posting once there's Dorothy eventually has to like save her friends and has to spin around in this room filled with objects and touch them to make her friends come back to life if they're the right object. Later on, I would feel like that was my life. Like I'm just spinning around in a room, touching objects, hoping I can turn my friends out of like whatever capitalized object they've been turned into back into them. I understand that that's work I have to do for myself as well. But um, that's all the sort of things of where that movie is so important to me. I mean, movies are my favorite. They're my absolute favorite thing. I didn't grow up in any place where there was highfalutin culture like we've got out here on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a rural town where I did get to be exposed to like things like Shakespeare or stuff that, that my parents would take me to as a kid or the Nutcracker. But 
you know, I think that it was movies that felt the most psychic and enchanting and um, that, I, that I still feel so moved by. That's what's going on with that. That's the reason for the repetition inside of Return to Oz. And I think there's a, a, many things that can happen inside of repetition. I think also you can reach a level of catharsis and joy. Sometimes like if I'm really upset, like that's where I'll put mommy dearest on if I'm feeling really self-pitying. Where it's just like, you know, what's what's one of those great self-pitying lines that that she has? Or oh God, when she tells Christina that she's gonna have to go on a scholarship, but she goes, <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared. It's so good. It's so good. Or when it's just so hilarious that when it's Oscar night, she goes, Oh God, I hate this night. Turns every year into a crisis. Like it's <laughs> It's hilarious. It's so funny because one is confronted with, there's a difference between me honoring and grieving my trauma and being like, well, do I have to cut through this kombucha squash myself? You know, I think like, you know, I loved when, when Trump was, it was clear he was going to be elected or it seemed very clear. And Karen Finley wrote, get out of your whole foods lane. You know, like, we've got to do something. And, and yeah, we didn't and do enough. And uh, all those things are so confusing. So but I think there's another way in which trauma like to overplay it can also feel really good at times mm -hmm. like, to go out and like and take up space, though. I'm not just saying do this vocally like this is actually a practice that it doesn't come from me. It's it comes from a healer who I can't remember his name is right now, but he'll like do really large three-dimensional movement while screaming the thing that's the most terrifying. Like, I was abused. Yeah. I am an abuse survivor. Like, but to like kick and dance around in that eventually is to shake it out of the, the bondage that was created by those people. Mm -hmm. There's handcuffs that are put on. There's psychic handcuffs that our abusers put on us. And so I look towards performance whether that's my writing, whether that's my movement, as a way to free myself to free others. Mm -hmm. I can't take someone else's handcuffs off if I don't have mine off first. Oh, I love that. It's like the putting, you know, the in recovery, they say, put your mask on before. It's similar. It can sound very draconian. And it can <laughs> sound very like, well, couldn't you just get your hands over by their hands and their handcuffs and pick the lock while you can't see? Nah, I'll take a lot longer, hon. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering, just switching gears slightly about your life in the past year with the viral success of The Little Lad. This is a character that was on a Starburst commercial in the early 2000s. 2008, no. I think. 2008, okay. And has come back into the sort of like pop culture sphere. Right. And you have um, had viral sort of attention from it on TikTok. You have a little yeah. lad TikTok. I mean, the handle for that on TikTok is the real little lad. And then I have a YouTube channel. And I would say the TikToks are really fast and YouTube is really slow. And the thing out of all of it I'm most proud of is a film that I created with Jeremy Jacob, who I'm married to, who is an incredible filmmaker. I really, my dream for us is is that Jeremy's the Cassavetes and I'm the Rollins. And we made a film called Anna, which is on the Real Little Lads YouTube with our genius cinematographer, Daniel Rampula. That's the thing I'm the most proud of, of all of this, formally. 
uh, emotionally, what I'm most proud of is kids reaching out, adults reaching out who have felt like weird or othered or anything that the little lad can stand in for and be some totem for them and them getting to have relief and a projection. Um, mm -hmm. And that like, I'll comment back to frequently to their comments on TikTok, if, depending on, you know, what the day is like and what my job is like, because I'm full-time at Bart, I'm a full-time faculty member. So as well as making my own work and the little lad, I mean, it was, it was becoming this viral thing over the summer and Reed Bartleby, who I used to do the podcast dance and stuff with, was like, what are you going to do about this? Because people were really using the little lad on TikTok. And I thought, well, the little lad should get to have their own presence. And so I just one day went on on a whim, bought a wig and did the first TikTok and it had a million views in like a day. And it really sped up and went really fast. And what it brought me was joy. Mm -hmm. I really for, I forget about joy quite frequently as a, I guess anyone who's living through this with a level of concern for other people and also as a trauma survivor and stepping into little lad is, is it just a place of joy and a level of carefreeness that I, I don't have as an artist. I'm too formal. I'm too critical. I'm too, you know, I make three hour pieces that I whittle down to an hour. Rehearsals are really fun. I think as any, anyone who works with me would say my rehearsals are really fun. When I do solos, I'm about to do a solo. Those are not fun, but it's a different thing. And I didn't have pleasure from it. I would just say it's not fun. So the little lad brought a lot of joy and doing the cameos has been super special. Uh, I mean, this past week I had, I did a cameo for a 13 year old's birthday and for someone who is going through a divorce and I had to really stepping into the character of little lad of what the little lad could give that person. Mm -hmm. I love that. That feels really magical. And I also love that it's all pronouns, character. That's a character that it's there for people to project onto while, while I'm just trying to channel. The little lad, they are a character that is evocative of like, a, I guess people would know as like a little Lord Fauntleroy sort of image of, you know, a, a page kind of blunt bang bob wig and then sort of a Victorian almost velvet kind of play suit. Right. Well, there's the original costume, which was very far more in that landscape. And then on my TikTok, I certainly, it quite quickly became more goth and more okay. gospel, which, which, which would be of the time. It Good. just, it, it would still be of the time. It just became more the Gothic of that time. And yes, that is, that is the image, which is interesting to the Lord Fauntleroy, who was played by a woman until a movie. Then that was played by a boy. And then I believe the woman who originally played Little Lord Fauntleroy plays the mother, I think mm. in that film. I love the concept though, of that cultural figure. Um, as a femme, a femme presenting boy mm -hmm. and the discomfort that that brings into people's brains. And mm -hmm. I think about that because I just saw Power of the Dog and there's, awesome. you know, a line with, with the panic that comes with a feminine boy being in the presence of extreme cowboy culture masculinity. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting. You did an interview with <clears throat> the New York Times and you said, 
that you feel like maybe you're a bit of a parental figure to the character of the little yes. lad. Absolutely. I'm the little lad's parent. And that was also why I did the TikToks was because I felt I saw someone who was just so sort of categorically beautiful, like do this TikTok saying, I've heard that I've, I've been getting that I look like the little lad. And so I'm going to look it up. And then he looks it up the commercial and does this thing that's this uh, trend on TikTok where it's, it's fake crying, where like then the person is like crying while looking at it. And I thought, no. Yeah. And my parents sidestepped forward and I thought, what if this happened to my child and they saw someone do this? So I did it for them. Has it been healing at all? What's been healing? No. What's been, uh, not for me, <laughs> healing for me, I would say. What has felt good has been feeling that I've been able to be of service to people, either through joy, play, or I would say it's, of course, particularly for me that, yeah, of course there's a healing when, so no, I, I'll take that back. There is absolutely a healing when someone writes saying I'm confused in my own gender or I was a mab, but I am, I'm a woman, uh, you know, or a girl or whatever age they're at. And, and thank you. Mm -hmm. Of course, there is a kind of healing in that healing always has a loop effect. If you're helping others, there's of course something that goes back to you. And yeah, I think, and also feeling to just having play, just so that there was some pleasure in play to like, I mean, I was teaching four courses last semester. I was, that's one course beyond what you're supposed to do. And I was so tired and working with some material that is just so, um, it just for me teaching, I really want to be what I didn't have. So I'm showing up with like a lot of boundaries. The way I prepare my syllabus is really, it's very assertive, as well as feeling I'm doing this bridge work over the Canyon of AIDS. And so then to go home and film this thing, I mean, that was fun. You mentioned this film um, with the little lad that you made with Jeremy and... And Daniel Rampula, yeah. It's called Anna. Yeah. And I think for me, I've heard your work described as tragic comedy. <laughs> um, but I was really moved by it. The premise is that the little lad is calling their mother... Who is Anna Wintour? We're trying to Vogue trying to reach because someone on TikTok has said I looked like Anna Wintour, which happened. And then I did a TikTok where I had images of Anna Wintour going across while I say mummy. <laughs> and because the the haircut is Anna's hair. Mm -hmm. And and the little lad's British. I became fascinated of what it would be for the little lad to have grown up with this mother who makes them do this dance to receive berries and cream and then disappears. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the little lad loves fashion. And so I just love the idea that it's Anna Wintour or that at least little lad thinks it is. And so the, this eight minute short that we made is very much about the little lad trying to get in touch with Anna Wintour, but other things begin to happen during that. That's right. That I would say yeah. are psychological. It's yeah. incredible. It's... Thank you. I'm really proud of it. I love it. And we've talked about doing a second one. And I'm not quite sure what it'll be yet. Anna, <laughs> if you're out there. Anna, watch Anna if you haven't, Anna. Um, okay. Talking about Tori Amos, you use the song Frog on My Toe. And is it in Desire at the beginning? 
yeah, so I made a work uh, for the Bard Theater and Performance that was on the Bard Theater and Performance students called Desire. And I was trying to break apart Streetcar Named Desire because I was really confused as to why that play is done with high school students or because it was done at my high school. And I so I watched YouTubes of high school students doing it, which I find horrifying. And I'm also confused why it would be on a college level. I also get that there isn't text that's written for teenagers into their early 20s, but it's such an abusive, nightmarish play if you're going to pick a williams like i don't know do glass menagerie or the milk train doesn't stop here anymore or camino real or these weirder ones but like this one about an alcoholic sister so that was one reason i wanted to do it i want i wanted to break it apart formally and figure it out so it has very little of streetcar in it another thing that i was really interested in is why did stella never come home and so then i i got really focused on why did blanche stay and who is this dad and during all of this, I was listening to Boys for Pele every day, which is my Alpha Tori album. I, I so want to be PJ Harvey, but I'm really Tori Amos. And out of all the Tori albums, I am Boys for Pele. And what is so painful for me or interesting or mesmerizing is that it's, it deals with the father. Something I'll say about the little lad is people ask, who's the father? And I always say, I don't have one. And so it was so imperative for me to like always just continue to do father erasure, but there's just no father that like, there just, there can't be, it's too, too terrifying, too haunting. And so I um, was listening to Boys for Pele through the whole thing. And, oh, the first dance I ever made in at Interlochen was to Father Lucifer because Boys for Pele came out when I went to Interlochen. So I was like leaving developing this super ego at Interlochen and I hadn't pieced the pieces together yet but this song really shook me and so I made this piece about it and so that album and then with the the full boys for Pele whatever that gets called you know that has all the b-sides on it has frog on my toe and I loved that song so much so we began with the actress who's playing Blanche playing it at a Casio keyboard before the work begins Frog on my toe, which is a song that Tori Amos wrote for her late grandfather. She's sitting at his grave. She would go visit him as a little girl and the, the grave site. And she's sort of envisioning the conversation that they would have. It's a beautiful song. And Tori Amos, I kind of slept on her. I also thought that I was more PJ than Tori. And so I kind of ignored Tori, you know, or like more bikini kill oh, than Tori, you know. So emotional. And for those of us who are so emotional, I'd rather be like, I'm a journalist and I express. <laughs> I'm a journalist, really. My songs are not about myself. I'm a, what I'm expressing is uh, I really do view the work as journalism. I mean, when, when PJ said that, I was like, yeah, yeah, me too. But honestly, I'm like, honestly, I'm like, slag, pit, stag, shit. Oh, honey, bring your clothes to my lips. Yeah. I mean, I'm so, I'm way more, you know, but what Tori, but what's so great about Tori, and I think we have to really prize her on is that she, the, the shift of the really autobiography of little earthquakes to something that's becoming far more this utilization of symbols by space dog in under the pink to then boys for Paley, which really feels like utter honesty while using like. I need a big loan from the girl zone, but um, 
I got a place in the Pope's rubber robe. I mean, when I think of like these things, it's like, well, it mm -hmm. makes sense. Her use of poetry became uh, stronger as mm -hmm. she got older. Yeah. I mean, and leather yeah. is what changed my life. Like when I heard leather in like my freshman year of high school, I was like, I didn't realize you could do that. Yeah. I didn't know you could be honest through art like that. She's also interesting to me just from like the fact that her own father was a Methodist minister right. and she describes, she has this great quote about the concept of baptism in the church that it's, you know, just a little bit of water being sprinkled over the head of a child, of an, of an infant, but that her experience with baptism was having your, her head held fully underwater for 25 years of her life. And that she could see that Jesus was not down. She, she could see underwater because her head was down for so long and Jesus was not down there, quote unquote. I mean, it's chilling. It's amazing. She's, Go listen to Tori Amos, everybody. <laughs> literally, literally. Well, and another thing that I'd say about Desire was that piece was, I think there's so much of my work that's so inspired by my mother's rearrangement of reality and what that is when people do that. And so mm -hmm. I'm playing at that inside of these roles. And desire was the sense of a real haunting by the father. I mean, there's a, a monologue that a boy delivers about his father making him clean his plate. And he's in releve while he does the whole monologue. There's a part where the role I would play in the show where the, the sister who has stolen Sylvia Plath from her other sister starts talking about why she makes films. Desire also includes um, some of Daddy by Sylvia Plath. It does. And then it's repeated by the girl who's playing Blanche. She repeats the same monologue, except she says she sees her father crouched in her bedroom, staring at her, and that she has to run out of the house. And I think the kind of haunting of the father also felt, that feels so inside a boys for Pele to me. Mm -hmm. um, it feels more like a father album. Totally. Whereas I would say Under the Pink, maybe a little Earthquake sounds more like the Mother album. Like I think of, you know, Mother and, you know, Mother the Car is Here. And it's really complicated because of that. And I think of the father crouching at the bed. I think of Bob and Twin Peaks. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, incredible. I saw Firewalk with me when I was 15, accidentally. And mm. I turned it on at the part where Laura gets home and hears someone upstairs and goes in her bedroom and sees that it blob and runs out and hides under the brush crying and then sees her dad walk out. And I lost my mind. That was another push for me to just get to Interlochen. I was like, I have to get out of this house. How old were you when you went to Interlochen? 16. I went 16 and for the summer and then I went to the academy. That was the escape exit for you. That was the, like, the ticket out. Yeah. I knew kids from, because I was doing theater in Madison, and I knew kids who were going to the camp. And so I asked to go to the camp, and I got a scholarship to go to the camp. And then there was someone at the camp who was a professor at the academy, and he said, I will get you the scholarship. You need to come here. Yeah. Because I think I was talented, and I think people also were like, I don't know if these teachers realized that they had to, like, get me out, but they did. Do you feel that responsibility you teach at Bard? Do you feel a need to be someone to do that for your students, you know, to help students figure a way out or to be sort of a parental figure to them as like a guide? Well, the teacher is in that weird position between the parent and the workforce. 
And so what that means is the function there really needs to be not being a parent and not being a boss, but providing training on that bridge. And so my work feels more about how to teach them to advocate for their responsibility. I always begin classes by having students envision someone they love and feel unconditional for. And then I ask them to wrap themselves in that. And that as soon as they steer away from that during class to pause and come back to that. I'm teaching them that they will have to parent themselves because you cannot come to class and get whatever, get a C or flunk it or whatever. But if you do that at a job, you get fired. And unless you come from a home that can support you forever, that won't work for you. And I'm certainly make it very clear that I'm not a therapist and that I am not their parent and that I'm, I'm old, so I'm not their friend or their peer. I am a teacher. And so I'm here to teach them what they're learning in the classroom, which also means teaching them what do they need to show up to do the work. There can be so many people who don't know even what they need to do that. And then you get burnout, right? Yeah. What do you tell them about, I know you mentioned about, you know, responsibility and sort of like going forth into the world. Do you talk to them about what, what is their understanding of quote, what success quote could look like for them as performers, especially, you know, we talked a lot in this conversation about the ways that capitalism puts terrible pressure, ruinous pressure on creativity. Do you talk to them about that? Sometimes I also let them know that the work that I make, that that they might see, whether it's on my website or maybe they come to, that I don't want them to feel that that's what I'm looking for them to make. Mm -hmm. So I want them to make their work. And I also say that there is work that is very in the public, successful and touted as being the best that I don't like because I have subjective reasons as a queer person that I find it offensive. So it's not for me. And so I alert them to that and that, you know, that it's also okay if what they want is to just make the biggest successful, like for everybody piece. And I let them know that a huge learning point for me was I thought I was making my work for everyone. And it was a huge lesson during everything is imaginable for me to realize that I'm not only not making my work for everyone, I'm actually making my work against some people. Mm -hmm. There are some people who hold views that I find so violent and antiquated and evil. I would say that I'm making my work against them. I know that there's people who are like, we've got to invite everybody to the table and have a good conversation. And I'm like, I've tried that a lot with a lot of other people. And then actually, uh, if someone's a narcissist, they don't hear you. Look, we're all going to die. So how do you want to spend your time? If you want to spend your time trying to get someone who's demonstrated through actions that they do not hold your values close, then what? I mean, that's, I got, I think of Tori, it's like, I could just pretend that you love me and life would lose all sense of fear. But why do I need you to love me when you don't hold what I hold dear? It's not life would lose all sense of fear and the night would lose all sense of fear, but I like life would lose all sense of fear. Why do I need you to love me when you don't hold what I hold dear? 
Mm-hmm. So I tell them that, I mean, I also, I have, these, this is all structured. <laughs> I went through it through lectures and things in which I begin by talking about AIDS. I talk about the culture wars. I talk about where we're at artistically. And then I talk about them and be with yourself and your body and go from there. So a lot of the training is also just getting them to be with themselves and their own body first. And then I believe if they do that enough, they'll instinctually follow the right path. And I also teaching, I mean, it comes from Ejikure. It's, I'm not there to put on, I'm there to withdraw. I'm there to withdraw their best potential, not put on what I think they need to be. And when that can come forward in a safe space, that's what classes get to be where they just, they, it's like being in a gym where they get to strengthen their muscles and then they'll go out and they can interview and, and find work that works for them. They're so lucky to go through a class or a curriculum with someone that has that perspective. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Jack, for, I, I kept you here for an extraordinarily long amount of time. It was such a pleasure. It was, I mean, I, I have to say the, when someone, I mean, we know each other, we're friends, but when someone comes and is prepped by, with former interviews, I am always honored. <laughs> It honors my time. And so therefore it made me want to give more time. Thank so, you. That's about you. Jack's website is jackferber.com and you can see a lot of the pieces that we talked about today on it. And their Instagram is at Jack Ferber. And my TikTok is Jack Ferber as well. And then Little Lad is the real little lad. And the YouTube is the real little lad. Little Lad is not on Instagram. I, I told Little Lad that they couldn't have their own Instagram account. <laughs> You're being I, a good parent. I said, well, I said the kids seem to be on TikTok, so you can have a TikTok account. <laughs> I think that's a good boundary. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash you guessed it, Tell Me About Your Father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.